So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of our uh, chair Bibles. You can find a Bible in the back of one or two of the chairs in the row in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, our text for this morning is on page 858. On page 858. So it's Luke chapter 3 as we continue our study. If you are a guest with us, let me add my uh, welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that you'll be encouraged uh, for having gathered with God's people today and being able to sing his praise and hear his word, and we, we trust that the Spirit will meet with you and encourage you and bless you, as we hope that he does for us as well. So Luke chapter 3 is where we'll be, and Sam's going to come and read the scripture for us today. Good morning, church. This is Luke 3, verses 1 through 20, the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have 
spoken to us. We thank you that you have revealed by your spirit, you have revealed your son to us. We ask now that you would, Holy Spirit, come and meet with us. That you would teach us. That you would lead us. That you would show us Christ. And would you be at work in us to cause us to repent and to believe. To make us into the people that you want us to be while we wait for Jesus to come. I can't do those things. We can't decide on our own to do those things. So Spirit, would you come and meet with us? We have to have you. And we thank you that you love to come and to bless and to save. So would you do it again today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? We don't usually begin with quite so stark a question, but it fits with John and his message. John was getting people ready for Jesus. He was fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 40. The one would come who would prepare the way of the Lord. And he prepared the way for the Lord by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was his whole job, to get people ready for the Lord to come. He tells us something about the Lord who is coming, when they're wondering, is he the Messiah? No, no, no. One mightier than I is coming. Here's what he is going to do. Are we prepared to meet Jesus, for every one of us and everyone who has ever lived, one day you will. You will. Are you ready for that day? So let's see John's urgency. Let's hear John's message. And let's respond with obedience to the call to repent. So as we consider this text, Luke 3, we're beginning the next section in this gospel. The first two chapters have set us up for what's going to come. We saw the birth of John the Baptist, that his job was going to be to get people ready for Jesus. We saw that in chapter 1. And then the prophecy about Jesus being born followed in chapter 2 by his birth. And one story from his youth. And now we have the beginning, kind of a beginning again almost, of this gospel. Having done the introductory material, he sets up the story again. And he sets it up at a new time. Think, what, are, what were all those multi-syllable words that Sam was reading in the first few verses, and reading so well in the first few verses of this chapter? Luke is setting up for us the story. And he's, remember, his whole point is to assure us that we would be certain about what we have received, what we have learned about the things that have been accomplished among us through Jesus. And Luke reminds us again as he grounds this story, says this is a real story that took place in real history. 
This John is not a made-up dude to make us feel better about ourselves. Of course, there's nothing about his message that makes us feel better about ourselves anyway. So we wouldn't make this up, right? He was a real man who really lived, and at a particular time, we're told in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and there's a couple different ways that you could start his reign because he was a co-regent for two years. So somewhere in like 26 to 28, as we would now know it, A.D., they didn't, they didn't know that because they didn't start. Anyway. It was about what we understand now, 26 to 28 A.D. And he's setting this up, and he could have just said in the 15th year of the reign of, to give us the timing, but he's also helping us to understand the climate. He's giving us the political leaders in the area where Jesus will minister. That Pontius Pilate... We're all familiar with who he is, that he is the governor of Judea, the southern part of Israel. And Jesus actually lived and grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. And this is where Herod is the Tetrarch. Again, just to make sure we're not getting confused, especially for the kids that are among us, this is not the same Herod that was trying to kill Jesus. Because you remember when Jesus and his family went to Egypt... Then the angel appeared to Joseph and said, you can go back now because the one who sought the child's life is dead. So that Herod was the father of this one. So the Herod here who's putting John in prison, he's known as Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was one of the sons of Herod who took over different parts of Herod the Great. That was the one when Jesus was born. Took over different parts of where he was ruling. So it gets confusing and there's, even, there's another Herod that we'll see in Acts as well. Um, so whenever you see Herod, don't automatically just load everything that you know about everyone who's ever been named Herod into that person. But this is another one who's not going to accept Jesus' message. He can't stand the message of repentance and ends up putting John in prison in our text today in verse 20. But that's him. And then it's his brother Philip, the one that uh, Herod had stolen Philip's wife. That's what John particularly, but that's actually not a good thing to do. And so that was the thing that he, that he was reproving him about, saying, you can't do that. He's calling for repentance, and he's calling for repentance. This is going to be important for us as we move through it, in particular ways. We may be used to the idea of repentance as something we do at the beginning of our walk with Jesus. They're like, I repented of my sins, sort of in general. I prayed and asked God to forgive me all my sins, and then now I'm saved, and I walk with him. And John is calling for very particular kinds of repentance. Repentance of our sins. Not just a general list of sins, that these are all the sins in the society. But repenting of our sins. And we see that even in the specificity with which he went after Herod. So Luke sets this up in in a different way than the other Gospels do. No one else goes into so much detail about who was in Judea and who's the ruler in Galilee. And these other areas are ones to the north and east of Galilee, most, most of the area where Jesus would do most of his ministry. So he sets it up politically, but then he also sets it up with the religious leadership. He says that this was during... In verse 2, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas, he was the high priest actually about 
12 to 15 years before this, but he basically had one of his relatives, either his son or his son-in-law, Caiaphas is his son-in-law, who was the high priest for years. And so there's a way in which Annas, though he wasn't the high priest currently at this moment, he exercised such authority over the high priestly office. And the high priest was the top ruler of the Sanhedrin. They'll come into play later, especially as we get to the trial of Jesus. Annas exercised so much influence that he's still spoken of as the high priest, even though his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is actually the high priest. I mean, it'd be like... If the story was happening today, right, you'd be like when Trump was president and when Wolf was governor and when Kenny was mayor and Chapu was archbishop, or he, as he likes to be called because his last name's horrible, Archbishop Charles. He's setting up the power structures. We don't need to know who the Catholic archbishop of our city is, right? It's where we don't look to him for, but that's who it is. He's been here for about seven years. All right. He's setting up the power structures, both political and religious. Then he points to where the real action is. See, we would look at all these names and go like, well, those are important people. They're in powerful positions. They make things happen. These are the political leaders. These are the religious leaders who in that day had a lot of political clout. We go, these are the people you want to know. These are the people you don't want to get on the wrong side of. This is where the action is. And Luke goes through all of them. And then at the end of verse 2 says, During at this time the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Even today the real action is not in Washington. Where real stuff gets done is not Harrisburg or City Hall or the Archdiocese. The real power then wasn't Rome or Jerusalem. It was at that time the word of the Lord. God was on the move speaking to John. And John would bring his message as the one who was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The one who would prepare people for Jesus. That's bigger work than any governor will ever do. Than any president will ever do. Luke shows us John as the forerunner of Jesus and how he prepared the people for the Lord. It's interesting, he leaves out some of the more memorable details that we might think of, like what John wore or what his diet consisted of. You'll find those in other Gospels, but not here. He gets right to John's message, and he actually tells us in more detail of, God's, of John's message of Repentance. What did it mean that he was preaching a baptism for repentance, for forgiveness of sins? He leaves out those details to get to the heart of John's message. John is getting people ready to meet Jesus. And he's getting us ready for Jesus too. He's fulfilling the promise about him that he would prepare the way of the Lord, which recalls Isaiah 40, which is quoted directly here. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see 
the salvation of God. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 3 through 5. Luke quotes this prophecy saying, it's happening. This is the one. This is the time when the work gets done. And what was John's message? That will be the big idea for this morning. The big idea is this. We must flee the coming wrath by turning from our sin. That's repentance. And by trusting in Jesus. That's faith. We can summarize John's message to his hearers by saying, we must flee the coming wrath by turning from our sin and by trusting in Jesus. So John, that's why we said a few minutes ago, like no one would make this guy up. (laughs) A big part of his message is to flee The coming wrath. See, salvation isn't just believing a different story about where the world came from. Or just believing a different story than everyone else does about where the world is going. It's salvation from sin. And more importantly, from the wrath of God. According to John, failure to repent leads to facing God's judgment. A judgment that will never end. We see this in verses 7 and 9 and 16 and 17. He says to the crowds, You brood of vipers, in verse 7, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, It is coming. And he uses some images to help us understand that this wrath is coming and it's coming soon says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now I don't cut down anything bigger than the kind of large weed sort of tree that grows back by our shed. And I probably don't have the right tools, but it's it's hard. (laughs) But if someone's cutting down a tree, and I don't know why, I'm more like swinging a baseball bat. If someone's swinging an axe... At a tree, and the axe is there. The swing's coming soon, right? It says, already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's not in the barn. It's right there. It's like you've already taken, he's already, the one who will wield this axe has already sized it up. I'm swinging right there. That's the kind of urgency that John wanted these people to feel because Jesus was coming. It says the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, that does not repent, is cut down and is thrown into the fire. He uses this image of fire again later on when everyone's wondering if he's going to be the Christ. And he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier... Then I is coming. This is verse 16. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then the one that's for sure about judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A flame that will not go out. It's not just that we miss out on being with God. We face his active wrath. We face his judgment. And it's Jesus who will come to judge, right? The winnowing fork is in his hand. So this is another image. So the first one was an axe that's already at the root of the trees, ready to cut it down. And in this one, this is a picture of the end. And this is another agricultural one where you may remember from like Psalm 1 with the wheat and the chaff. And where you can't see the difference. And so they would throw them up in the air. And the wheat is heavier. The one that's real is heavier. And it would come back down. And the chaff is light. And it blows away in the wind. So that's what Jesus is going to do. Now it's not literal, right? It's not going to literally throw us up in the air and see which ones of us are heavier. I guess that'd be more motivation to eat at Chick-fil-A more often and drink Coke. That's not how it's going to be. No? It sounds good. It's, I shouldn't have brought that up today, though, because you can't go. I'm very sorry. You can't, they're closed. You can't go till tomorrow. It's not about a literal picture here of being tossed into the air. But it's just as devastating as that. It's just as direct as that. There's a way in which we'll be weighed in the balances. And will we be found wanting? Jesus will come to judge. This picture is a picture of Him making a great division. Between those who are his and those who are not. And this fits with what Simeon prophesied about Jesus. Back in chapter 2. Remember he was the the old man who said, Now I can die in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. In verse 34 of Luke chapter 2 it says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus will bring a great division. He said in another place, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And so John uses the picture of the wheat and chaff to distinguish the real from the fraudulent. Are we wheat or are we chaff? Are we his or are we not? John is intent on shaking up the complacent. And he preaches a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism was back then and is now a rite of initiation. And especially at that time, of initiation for people who were not Jews to be able to convert to Judaism. Okay, does that make sense? So the, really the only people who would be baptized in the normal course of Judaism would be people who are not Jews, who want to become Jews religiously. And here you have John preaching a baptism that seems like it's for everybody. Right? It's like everybody needs this baptism. 
And that's exactly what John is saying. You all need this. But weren't they already in? You might say, but I'm religious. And he would say, don't care. Say, but I'm a child of Abraham. He says, don't care. That's not what it's based on. It's not based on where you're from. It's not based on who your parents are. It's not based on whether you grew up in church or not. He says, you all need this. Because we all have sinned. None of us on our own, by our own works, are ready to face Jesus. Not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who is righteous. Not even one. Even the person that you think of as like, but I've never seen them sin. Like, they're the, they're the best. Like, I want to be like them when I grow up. Even the people you think of in that category. They too have sinned. And they too, if it were just up to them and what they could accomplish, would fall short. And would stand before God one day and be judged. And we have two different responses that are on display for us in the text. Some will respond to the message by saying, what shall we do? And we see actually three different groups of people say that. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to repent. What does it look like for us? And we'll get there in a little bit. But others may respond by trying to silence you or even destroy you. That's what Herod does with John and what the Pharisees will later do with Jesus. And Herod may be able to silence John, but he cannot escape God's judgment. He may be able to put John in prison and keep him from preaching, but that doesn't change his situation. That doesn't change why John was addressing him. He may be using his earthly power to be able to shut out the voice that would condemn him, but the one who would condemn him, who doesn't need to because he's condemned already, the one who's bringing that judgment is coming. So for us, you know, we can't put anybody in prison, or if you can, uh, talk with me afterwards. Don't try to silence the one who calls you to repentance. Don't shut off your conscience. When you're being convicted of sin, don't try to silence it. Don't mute the Holy Spirit with constant noise. We always have noise. Everywhere we go, there's, there's music playing. There's anything that would keep us from stopping and thinking about our true condition. Don't mute the Holy Spirit with constant noise or the distraction that devices can provide. We can kind of push things off. You know what I'm talking about, right? I've done it too. So this isn't like me preaching at you. We all do that. We know what's not right. It's like, well, how can I feel better about myself right now? What can I do to change the way I feel? And we miss the one thing that actually changes us. So don't silence the Holy Spirit with noise or distraction that devices can provide. Instead, we want to be not like Herod, not like the Pharisees, We want to be like the rest of the people who said, what shall we do? What are we supposed to do? And John's message to us, which became the message given to us by Jesus, and the message of the apostles to us would be very 
simple before it gets specific. And it would be turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. How do we flee the coming wrath? What do we need to do? We need to turn from our sin first and then second, trust in Jesus. So turn from your sin. The heart of John's message is repentance. Now what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. The essence of repentance is turning. It's that you were going one way and you turn around and you go a different way. That we were going towards sin and now we turn and we're going away from sin to God. You could even say something like, walk a different path. That was for you guys and all the Karen graduates out there as well. What's the point of walk a different path? It's repentance. It's walking a different path than you would have walked, than you used to walk, and than everyone else does. Right? And that's what happens for those who are His. That's what we looked at pretty much all last spring in 1 Peter. That those who have been born again are to live a different life. Different than they did before and different than those around them. Certainly it includes at least a different way of thinking. And yes, getting in requires repentance and faith. But this is also an ongoing reality. It's not just that I turned around that one time and then kept going the same way. So we turn around. And we walk in a different direction than we did before. And a different direction than the rest of the world does. Repentance is an acknowledgement that something needs to change. That we need to be saved from something. It involves sorrow for sin. It involves saying, this isn't what I want to do. This is not who I want to be anymore. And then it involves a sincere turning away from sin. And John is calling them, repent. And we'll hear in just a few minutes, other gospel preachers of the New Testament call people to repent. Let me just say something else about repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. We may be used to the idea, and it's not wrong to say we are justified by faith alone, as opposed to we're not saved by our works. It's the gift of God. Jonathan read that for us earlier when he shared. We're not saved by our works. And some would look at this and go, like, you're making repentance into a work. Say, no, we're not. We want to be submissive to what the Bible reveals. There is no salvation without repentance, and repentance doesn't save. Jesus does. Okay, so it's not figuring out the quality of our repentance, just like we don't figure out the quality of our faith. We turn as much as we know how to from our sin, and we trust in Christ. Repentance doesn't save. Jesus does. And there's no salvation without repentance. 
Salvation is not just adding something onto your life that, oh, I believe. No, it's a turning from sin. Because we're not just people who have found ourselves in a little trouble and just need pulled out. We are people who have, who have been active rebels against the crown. We've said, king? Yeah, no, I'm the king. And we need to be rescued. Listen to how it's used in a couple other places. Where you go, if, if we're thinking about repentance, is this necessary? At the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus commissions the disciples, listen to how Jesus himself summarizes the message that will go out. He said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Not a word about faith. Now, faith is important and just as necessary as repentance. But think about how you would respond when someone says, well, what, what am I supposed to do? This is what Peter faced in Acts 2. So this is Peter preaching on Pentecost. This is the first gospel message of the age of the Spirit. And he sounds a lot like John. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they heard Peter's story of the gospel of Jesus' death and that they killed him. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Just like what people ask John here in Luke 3. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is turning from our sin and turning to Christ. See, John didn't only want people to turn from sin. This is the way he prepared them for Jesus, but he wanted them to turn to Christ. He wanted them to see Christ as the great one who was coming, right? When, when people wondered, verses 15 and 16, is he the Messiah? It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not even worthy to be the servant who unties his shoes. That's a pretty low job. If you think about like the jobs you can have. Yeah, I'm a servant in the king's house. Yeah, when he gets back from a hunt, I take his boots off. Great. That's not a prestigious job. In most situations, someone who would have people doing a job like that for them, they wouldn't even care who's on the other end of the boot taking it off. And John says, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm not good enough to even be the servant who takes off his shoes. See, his whole ministry was about pointing people to Jesus, not declaring his greatness, but declaring the glory and the greatness of our Savior. And John wants us to turn from our sins, yes, and he would add that we must trust in Jesus. So repentance is turning from our sins, but repentance always comes with faith. Trust in Jesus. Not faith in our perfect repentance that we did it right, but faith in our perfect Redeemer. John says that Jesus is the stronger one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He says, I only baptize with water. 
John could only do an external baptism that, that hopefully pointed to an internal reality. But Jesus brings the decisive baptism, the one on the inside. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. And now the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our hearts to God, who causes us to be born again, and who gives us repentance and faith as gifts. He says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he also says that Jesus baptizes with fire. Now there's some question about what this means. Is the baptism with fire the same as the baptism with the Holy Spirit? And especially when we think about Pentecost and the tongues of fire that were present, it's like, maybe. But John is also very, very clearly moving right away to talking about judgment. Right? And an unquenchable fire. So I don't know for sure which one of those it, will, it is. But you could think of it even the expression that we have a baptism by fire, which is an expression for being thrown in before you're ready and being overwhelmed. I think anyone who's not ready to face Jesus will feel overwhelmed. And so whether it's fire is connected to the baptism of the Holy Spirit or whether fire is connected with God's judgment, it's clear that those who are His will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those who refuse repentance will face God's wrath. Everyone at some point must respond for themselves. We all deserve the coming wrath because of our sin. And so we all need repentance and faith. There's nothing automatic about it. Right? How did John warn the people? He said, don't begin to say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham. It's like these stones around here, God can make children of Abraham out of them. Children of Abraham is not about your parents. It's not about your line. It's about your connection to Christ by faith. That's how we get in. And it's true for us today. Maybe you've grown up as a Christian. And now you're an adult and you come because like this is what we do. We go to church. That's, that's the thing. This is where I am on Sundays. And there's no connection in the rest of your life to what happens here on Sundays. That there's no thought of, I, I will live to honor Christ with my life. I will seek to obey Him. I want to live for His glory. I want to live in this world with my one short life as a follower of Jesus, as a subject of the King. If you can go from Sunday to Sunday, and you've never thought about that in between, maybe it's time to stop and think. Have I turned from my sin? Am I turning from my sin? Am I trusting in Jesus? You don't get points for walking through the doors. That's not how it works. Whether you're adults or your children. Kids who are here, you might, well, you know, this is what we do. And of course, I believe. But have you trusted in Christ for yourself? The faith of your parents, the knowledge of your parents will not save you. That is not enough. They could be the best parents ever. The most holy, most God-fearing, Jesus-loving parents ever. And that doesn't guarantee anything for you other than that you get to grow up in a great home where you're going to hear about Jesus and be called to repentance and faith. But if you've never trusted in Christ, you can trust Him today. 
You can take him as your Savior. Own him as your Lord. And you too will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be his, knowing his life, knowing his power, both now and forever. And this salvation comes to us through repentance and faith, through turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. We saw sometimes where the message was simply repent. And then there's other times like in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer where the message is simply believe. And it's that these ideas are so closely related to each other that repentance can really even cover. I'm turning from sin to Jesus. That that's part of the turn. And that belief is believing that his sacrifice on the cross was for us. Repentance and faith, while there is a theological distinction and there are different words used in the Bible, they go together like bacon and eggs. Or like bacon and anything. They're like fireworks and the 4th of July. Right? It wouldn't be the 4th of July without fireworks. You never have one without the other. It's not that someone believes in Jesus and never experiences sorrow for sin. It's not that someone believes in Jesus and never turns from their sin. And you can't really turn from your sin without trusting in Christ. And so very often we see them together. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus' first words there as he preached, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Together, repentance and faith make up what theologians call conversion, where we go from living our own life and we are converted. We are turned around to trust in Christ. Paul could even summarize his ministry to the people in Ephesus like this in Acts 20, 21. He says that what he did was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to do? The big one is we're to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. But then we are called to live as God's people because repentance is ongoing. Right? It's not just turning around. It's walking. When we baptize people here, we use the words from Romans 6. And as they're coming out of the water, we say that they are raised to walk in newness of life. It's not just they made a decision and now they're good with God. They're raised to walk in newness of of life. John would say, if repentance doesn't lead to a changed life, it's not repentance. The way he put it in verse 8 was, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's kind of like James's call in his letter, to show your faith by works. And the power And this is the beauty of living in the age in which we live. The power to actually repent in an ongoing way, the power to change comes from the Holy Spirit who lives inside us. So there were a few different groups that asked Jesus, what shall we do? It was the whole crowd, and he gave an answer. Then it was tax collectors, and it was soldiers. 
And so we want to answer it in our last few minutes today for certain groups, like John did. It's a good exercise for each of us. And I would commend this to you, even today. Maybe it's a really busy day, maybe tomorrow. What should it look like in your particular circumstances? Your relationship status, your family situation, your work, your home. What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus in this time and in this space? What are the particular temptations that I face in all these spheres of life? We're called to live as God's people. We live like Jesus is our king, that we are his people. We live according to his values, which were shown so clearly to us in the way that he lived for us. I mean, think about this. He, John says to the crowds in verse 11, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. This is a call for both rich and poor to be generous. It says, if you have two coats and somebody has none, give them one. You're like, whoa. Sorry, this happens sometimes. It's not. There was one time somebody thought it was going to be the rapture in like a second. Um, <laughs> it's just the wind and the building combining. If you have two coats, you have enough to give. So let him who has food, he doesn't say how much, give to him who has none. Our relationship with money and what we feel like it can buy reveals a lot about our spiritual condition. Are we just looking for more, grasping on to what we have, or are we living with open hands ready to give. That's what he's calling the crowds to. That's his message for everyone. Before we drop down into specifics of you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that, this is what everyone is supposed to do. And isn't it what has been done for us? Jesus was naked on the cross so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. He gave his own body to be heavenly food for us as we trust in him. He became poor So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And so we are rich if we are in him, no matter what we have or don't have. And we are called to follow him. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. That's in Luke 19. He was a tax collector. He'd been cheating people for years. And when Jesus said, I'm coming to your house, And he receives Jesus says, yes, I I want you to come to my house. And he says, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to give it back fourfold. Four times what I took. That's what I'm going to give back. And out of the rest of it, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. And Jesus said to him, Luke 19, 9, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, it's not because he gave things away that he became saved. He gave things away 
because he was saved. That's the power for us to give things away is knowing the riches that we have through Christ. We don't, we don't give to the poor so, that, well, was that enough? Will God be pleased with me? Will I make it when I stand before him? No, because we will make it because of Christ's righteousness when we stand before him. And we have every good gift given to us by God the Father himself. We give. Paul summarizes again when he's on trial before Herod Agrippa and before Festus in Acts 26. Here's how he summarizes his ministry. It says, he preached to both Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So what shall we do? Just a couple things real quick as we close. I know it's already long today. One may be that you need to identify with Jesus in baptism. If you have turned from your sins and you've trusted in Christ, you need to be baptized in water. You need to follow him. John's baptism is a call to humility, and so it is today. Baptism is an act that acknowledges that we are not good enough on our own, that we need salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then beyond that, as we think about, okay, different situations, and this is just quick, you do your own exercise later. Are you in a position, in any sphere of your life, a position of power or authority? Are you in a position of power or authority? If so, it's not for you. It's for others. Do you have a lot or even a little? It's not for you. None of it belongs to us. It's all His. And He puts it in our hands for a time to be able to bless and serve others with. John told the tax collectors, don't take any more than you're supposed to take. So I don't think we have any IRS workers in our church. Uh, But if you work for the IRS, do things properly and don't take more than you're supposed to. The soldiers in those days were much like today's police. And they said, what shall we do? He said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And so for the policemen who are among us, who gather with us here, use your position to bless. Indeed, to, to steal your mantra, to protect and to serve. Not to look out for your own interests, but for the interests of those you are called to serve. If you're in financial planning, present the best options for your client, not the options that are most beneficial to you. If you're in sales, tell the truth about your product. It'll make you look different from the rest of the world. If you're an IT professional, if you're on the development side, write clean code. Someone's going to have to clean that up after you. And if you're on the service side, don't look down on everyone else. You know that you do. That's a way that you can look different at work. Is by realizing we're all on the same playing field. I'm not smarter. I'm not better. 
Yes, users will do stupid things. But this is a way you can live differently. Don't look down on everyone else. For workers in general, don't look busy when the boss is around. Someone's coming, close that tab, right? No, no one here's ever done that, I'm sure. <laughs> Teachers, be patient with your students. That's hard. <laughs> Get a witness on the front row here. It's hard. But God's given you a ministry with those kids. He's given you an opportunity to love them and to do it differently than many of their other teachers do. Students, don't cheat. Don't just care about being better than the person next to you. Work hard on the work that God has given you to do. Parents, don't just use your children to be your personal trophies. If you've been a parent for very long, you figure out that doesn't work very well anyway. But I think maybe some of the devastation that we feel when they're not the trophies that we want them to be comes because we have had that as an idol. Children, don't rebel against your parents. Don't disobey because you know what's right. A way you can demonstrate repentance toward God and faith in Christ Jesus is to trust your parents and to obey them. Fathers particularly, don't let important things go where there's real rebellion and then get upset when they get in the way of your game. That's hard for us. They're not really a problem until they're in our way. And then we're not dealing with the heart. And we're not dealing in love. And we exasperate them. Mothers, one way you can repent is to repent of thinking that you have more control of your children's lives than you actually do. And this can be positive and negative. Right? So it's not that you have to figure every, everything out and have them in exactly the right environment for every moment. That won't guarantee anything. On the other side, you did not ruin them this week. I promise. I know you feel that. You did not ruin them this week. God loves those kids more than you ever could. So entrust them to Christ. Don't use your personality to excuse your sin. Some of us would say, I'm, I'm just not a schedule or routine person, so I can never have a habit of meeting with God and his word and prayer, even though I know that's what the Bible says I'm supposed to do, but it's just my personality. I just don't work well that way. Repent. Other, others of us would say, I love schedules, and I hate when people mess them up. You can tell which category I'm in, right? Right? And then we go, well, I'm just not a people person. I'm a systems person. The systems are to serve the people. The great commandment was not love God and get your task list done. It's love God and love your neighbor. Some of us really need to hear that. 
If you're suffering, you can suffer differently than the world does by entrusting yourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. We're called to live an ongoing life of repentance toward God and faith in Christ Jesus. We flee the coming wrath, not through our actions, but through turning from our sin, trusting in Jesus day after day after day. The whole Christian life is a life of repentance and of faith. So let's trust him. Let's come to him in repentance and faith. He took care of all our sin. And he will take care of us all the way to the end when he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Thank you that you sent your son not just to separate the wheat from the chaff, but to give his life so that we could have life with you forever. We thank you for that sacrifice. We ask you to help us to celebrate it well, even now as we remember him. In Jesus' name, amen.